Okay, dude. I, uh, I I think the cooking with Schmoo is starting to pay off. My 11-year-old not only volunteered to make dinner tonight, um, but she also put effort into the plating of it. Wow. Presentation. Yes. Excellent. Well, you know, funny, funny that you say this because I'm just coming into this podcast after watching uh, two hours of MasterChef Junior, where my wife is saying, you know, when I was nine years old, I didn't have a signature dish. <laughs> I don't know how to cook Nigerian shrimp stew. I, she actually sort of in a derogatory tone referenced, you know, microwave dinners. And it gave me an opportunity to tell her about a time in history before microwaves when we called them TV dinners. So I tied an onion to my belt, which was the style at the time. No. Oh, yes. From Swanson's. And they were terrible. <laughs> Ever since we got married, all he does is eat. Good thing I found these hungry man dinners from Swanson. We were having this discussion earlier tonight. Did you know that there were four different types of shake and bake coatings? Oh, don't get me going on the shake and bake. Chicken, pork chops, fish, and hamburger for some reason. What? I've sampled all of them because my mother is a terrible, terrible cook. Sorry, Mom, but you are. It's that Manitoba cuisine. Oh, <laughs> there's no such thing. The only thing that's coming that comes good out of Manitoba is Lake, Ma uh, Lake Winnipeg pickerel. And that is God's fish. It is a, it's a fantastic thing. My mother can do that very well, as well as apple pie and butter tarts. But after that, mom, stay out of the kitchen. God's fish was an awesome thrash band in the 90s. <laughs> From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. With the Oscars behind us, the geeks ask a very simple question. Why does smart science fiction bomb at the box office? We'll put that question to Georgia Tech professor of science fiction studies, Lisa Yazik. For every dollar a rival took in, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 took in four. And don't get us started on Star Wars. Or Star Trek. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Why does smart sci-fi bomb at the box office? X-ray Delta One, this is Mission Control. Roger, you're 2013. Sorry, you fellows are having a bit of trouble. We are reviewing uh, telemetric information in our mission simulator and uh, will advise. Uh, Roger, your plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo, a 3-5 unit, prior to failure. This is something that's bothered me for a very long time because one of the very first sci-fi films I remember seeing is 2001. My, I took my dad to see, or my dad took me to see the re-release of it, the reissue of it, 1972, I think it was. And that was, and still is, one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made because it's brainy. Um, it's important because they, they understand that in space there's no sound uh, and it's it was it's just a, a fantastic movie on, on on so many different levels. A little bit dated when it comes to the technology and a few other things, but considering that it was projecting you know fifty years into the future or forty years into the future, it was it was really really good. 
Arrival in 2016 got eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, only made $203 million at the box office. You put Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds together, you think that'd be box office gold. Life has only managed to rake in $100 million. Five Oscar nominations for Blade Runner 2049 this time around. Hasn't even broken $260 million in ticket sales. But Rogue One, guess how much? Yeah, I don't even want to think. $1.1 billion. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, $864 million. It's a bit sad. I mean, I, you and I both are science fiction fans, and I'm sure we both have lamented how few genuinely good hard science sci-fi films have done well at the box office. I remember seeing Alien for the first time in 1979 thinking, my God, that is a good film. Alien Aliens was also another good film, but I'd be really hard pressed to name any any more since the early 1980s. I mean, there's few, you know, there's a few in there. I mean, you're right. You know, Arrival was 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 good. I hear Annihilation is good. Not quite the same kind of sci fi. Close Encounters was good. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm see I'm running out of steam right there. Maybe sci-fi moviegoers want more fiction than science. For perspective on this, we turn to Lisa Yasnick. She is a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Tech. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me tonight. So what's wrong? Why, why don't people understand or have a need for proper science fiction? And I'm thinking, you know, you know the Arthur C. Clarke stuff, Paul Anderson stuff. Uh, it's just, it doesn't translate. We keep trying to make it, and that's what sort of is interesting, too. But, you know, there's a difference between, like you were saying, like Rogue One and the big franchise blockbuster movies, and then these smart, auteur-driven films. Um, of course, first of all, in terms of budget, right? I mean, the big blockbusters, they have more money put into them. There's more advertising. They're placed in more theaters. Um, so in part, they have an advantage always from the beginning. Um, but there's another difference as well, right? That these smart kinds of science fiction films that you're talking about, they ask different questions than the big science fiction films do. Like, you know, whenever you hear Hollywood directors talk, they always talk about, oh, I want to get at the human heart of the story. And, and obviously the stories we tell are human. Um, but I think like the stories we tell with the big blockbuster films, the questions we ask are maybe more universal um, and more almost generic questions like, can good and evil really ever, can one overcome the other? Uh, can fathers and sons get along? Can humans and aliens get along? These kinds of questions. But in the, in the smart films, we ask much more specific questions about what it means to be alive in a really deeply scientific and technological era. And sometimes when we ask those questions, we don't always like the answers we get because we learn that humans maybe aren't the center of the universe. Right. So films like Arrival force us to question our place in the universe. Perhaps it's just too dis too disconcerting. I think so. Right. And that goes all the way back to 2001 as well. That's part of both the thrill and the fear of that movie is that some aliens who we never see somewhere out there seem to be manipulating us. So we're not if we are the center of the universe, it's only because they've put us there. 
Yeah, but we can also look at movies like Soylent Green, uh, The Andromeda Strain. Uh, one of my favorite movies over the last 15 years was Moon by uh, Duncan Jones. <laughs> Lunar Industries remains the number one provider of clean energy worldwide due to the hard work of people like you. <laughs> Three years is a long haul, you know. I know you're really lonely up there, but I'm proud of you. Two weeks to go, Sam. Two weeks to go, buddy. I'm going home. Oh yeah. These are these are smart, brainy movies that at some point in the film you don't know what's going to happen next. Right. And there is this at one point a big whoa, I did not see that coming. And you love that 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 sense of being surprised. Yeah. Because you've you've gone off on, on a completely different tangent and it makes you think. Right. I one of my favorite books um, uh, the, is is some. Have you read the Three Body Problem? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's um, there was a movie version of that released in China, and we're supposed to get it in the soon. I hope. I okay. This is written by uh, Tui. How do you pronounce his name? Xishen Liu, I think. He is China's number one science fiction. Fan. Yeah. There are three book or science fiction writer. There are three books in the Three Body Problem trilogy, and I have not read any books that have made me go, "Holy cow! This author has really thought this through, and has come up with twists and turns and imaginative ways of explaining a, a, a theoretical situation that." just continue continually shocked me and i didn't want the books to end because they were always so innovative every step of the way and they're long books oh yeah they go on and on and on um but that's part of what's so great about them they have a lot of time to really dive into detail and really explore their ideas and i wonder sometimes if that's not one of the real challenges when you're trying to do a smart science fiction film is smart science fiction is all about ideas and you really need to dive in and grapple with these ideas whether it's the possibility of an alien life elsewhere or the possibility of faster than light travel or a certain kind of physics and the nice thing about a novel or even a graphic novel or a TV series is you have a lot of time to sort of explore the problems. Whereas in a movie, you've got two hours, maybe three hours max, and you've got to get through this whole scientific explanation and the adventure. It's a lot to ask of directors, apparently. <laughs> I wonder, too, because I think about my wife who you know, does not want to have a conversation with her geeky husband about whether or not there is actually life beyond our planet. It, it just it just creeps her out the idea that, uh, first of all, there's vast void. And then that somewhere out there, there's something else that is nothing like us. Um, so we've got that discomfort component to it. But I think when you look at films like Star Wars or your guardians of the galaxy, we don't ask the viewer to contemplate the idea that there's life beyond our little world. We just accept it right out of the gate and move on to the plot line itself, as opposed to making it the plot line. I, I wonder if, if movies like Star Wars really aren't about the lasers and the spaceships and the aliens as much as they're about the relationships of the key characters. Well, I think that they, they are about those things. And if you talk to science fiction authors who saw uh, Star Wars, the, the first movie, Star Wars 4, when it first came out in the 70s, 
70s, you know, one thing that they really talk about is that Star Wars did bring science fiction concepts to audiences that, that uh, concepts that people hadn't really been talking about, like faster than light travel and artificial intelligence and artificial satellites. So there's definitely that appeal. And you really get that. That's the great thing about the big franchise blockbusters is there's a great budget to do these fantastic special effects. And you can really see what these different uh, futures might look like or what different kinds of sciences or technologies might look like. But that's the trick. You have to carry it, a lot of it through the visuals and you don't have a lot of time again to sort of have big conversations about it. It's just not exciting to watch a group of scientists stand around and talk about the construction of the Death Star. It's way more exciting to watch the Death Star blow things up, right? I mean, the spectacle, that's part of the fun. Well, I don't know. HGTV might really get a big kick out of doing a making of. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So having critiqued a bunch of science fiction movies over the last, I don't know, however many years here your study goes, what's what what do you like? What's been good for you? So I, I am a fan of, of the smart and the auteur-driven films. I, I like a good underdog story. I'm, I'm in favor of something besides humanity winning the battle. I'm excited by stories where we see that humans might not be the center of the universe, but but that's okay because there's still life and there's still excitement and there are still things going on. So I love both the Blade Runner movies. I think they're just fantastic. And I really loved Arrival. I thought it was such an amazing movie. Wow, I mean, two hours of humans talking with aliens and not a single shot happened, right? I mean, that's just <laughs> unheard of. Um, and I just saw Annihilation last weekend. I wanted to see it in the theaters before it left. And it's definitely worth it if you can go see it. It's a beautiful film. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger. It's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Well, I think that sort of brings back to what you just said there, brings back to the point of you wanted to see it before it was gone because you knew it wasn't going to last particularly long. You mentioned Blade Runner, though. So much of science fiction is dystopian. Some of the most popular written science fiction is dystopian in its nature, Neuromancer and all the others. Uh, so if we like to read it, why don't we like to watch it? Well, I think we do like to watch it. Um, I have three words for you, The Hunger Games. Okay. And, you know, so, and, and a lot of like the young adult dystopias are very popular, right? The Maze Runner. So we see a lot of those. Um, and there are certainly dystopian elements in, for instance, the Star Wars movies, right? I mean, the, the Empire is, are there, they're definitely the bad guys. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I see your point that a lot of our movies, uh, aren't necessarily those kind of full-blown dystopias. And I think in part, this might be because we we are optimistic still about the future. There's a lot of different conversations we have about science and technology in the future. And like you were saying, we like movies that keep humans comfortably at the center of the universe. And one of the things we assume is that we have some control over science and technology and we can use that to transform the universe. And right, that sort of is the impulse in Star Wars. It's certainly the impulse in, in Black Panther. Um, and even in a movie like Interstellar or The Martian, I think there's very much this sort of celebration of the future. So maybe we have to balance our dystopias with more positive images of the future to keep that conversation going. 
I will I will agree with you in saying that Interstellar and The Martian are two better movies of the 21st century in terms of science fiction. Yeah. Can I go through a couple of films and you can give me your, your impressions of them? Yeah, sure. Okay, District 9. Oh, gosh, District 9. That is a great film. I really enjoyed that. It's a popping sound that you're hearing. It's almost like a popcorn. Uh, what the egg does is it, 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 it pops up. You know, the little guy, what's left of him, pops up. Hello, little guy. I love that it's, it's, it's a great example of what's happening in, in the science fiction scene at the global level, that you really see countries from all over the world and countries who don't always associate with science fiction telling these great science fiction stories. And I love that it's a global language and people from all over and from different time periods can use it to talk about their experiences of science and technology or their hopes and fears about it. And we all get it, right? So, you know, maybe District 9 is drawing on specifically the history of South African race relations, but it can use the story form to really make it compelling and an exciting story for everyone and still very relevant to the modern, modern world. Next one, 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys. Love that one. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen 12 Monkeys in a long time, but I did just rewatch La Jetée, you know, the short French film that it's based on. That's a cool film. I haven't thought about it in a while, but it's another one that really plays right with dystopia and utopia. And I think it appeals to people because it's this, oh, the ultimate fantasy that we can go back in time and change our own history. Who doesn't want to do that, right? <laughs> Gravity. Gravity. So I use the power button is here. Ah, okay, uh, undocking, undocking. Um, uh, eeny, meeny. Okay, that doesn't sound good. Money. Mo. Ah, no hablo chino. Money. Mo. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, that was an interesting film, too. And successful. Yes, right? Big surprise there with that guy who you could barely stand to look at, George Clooney. <laughs> it, it is. It is. He's difficult on the eyes. That's true. Definitely. Um, but, you know, that's another kind of cool film. And I feel like in part that one did so well because it... it it was as much about the interpersonal relationship as it was the scientific concepts behind it. And it did a really nice job, I think, using the concept of gravity to, do, to you know, both handle the science fictional elements of the film and the interpersonal elements. What is the most accurate science fiction film you have ever had the pleasure of watching? Because, you know, you're screaming at the screen at various points in your head. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that's a good one. You know. Um, I can tell you sort of my top three. I don't know if I can pick amongst them, but up until earlier this week, I would have told you either Interstellar or The Martian, actually. And I think that's part of why they were sort of such interesting and compelling movies. And both of which were, they were more like the big blockbuster movies, but they have the kind of appeal that the auteur-driven films do. And, you know, The Martian, it's so cool. Uh, Andy Weir's a computer scientist, but every time he wrote a chapter, he posted it online, and he would invite people from the scientific community to come and help him workshop the scientific and technological problems there. So that's really cool that it has this sort of immediate stamp of approval from the scientific community, and I thought the movie did a great job dramatizing some of that. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, 
I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. So in Interstellar, same thing, right? You got Kip Thorne, the physicist, uh, working on that, and that's cool. Um, and then, you know, I was just reading about um, an article about annihilation that Alex Garland works with a British uh, scientist. I think he's a geneticist, and they would say that annihilation is based on some pretty good um, cell, some some good cell science, and I'm willing to buy it. It was such a wacky movie, and it was wacky in the way science can be wacky. And how exciting is that? So those are my, my three picks for the most scientifically accurate and fun. How much do you hate Neil deGrasse Tyson debunking science fiction films on Twitter? Oh, I hate it when people do that. <laughs> I do. I do. You know, it's funny. It's like you don't get it. And, you know, when you talk to scientists who write science fiction, the big thing they'll point out is, of course, you want to, you know, engage scientific ideas and, and be plausible and as accurate as possible. But at some point, you have to break the science to tell a fiction story or else you're writing a lab report. So I, I totally understand that. But then if you look at shows, uh, movies like Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Right. I mean, they completely lost the plot on, on the whole. Yeah. Like, like, again, Alien and Aliens and even Alien Resurrection. Yeah. I can buy into all three of those films, but then when we get to Prometheus and Alien Covenant, right? They just there's so many holes in the plot, so many holes in the science that that my wife and I stomp out of the theater at the end, saying we're never going back to a movie theater ever again in our lives. Well, this is why it's an art form, right? You got to hit that right balance between the science and the fiction, and you got to keep your your viewers there with you and willing to suspend disbelief. And you know, those ones just they don't put it together quite right. Lisa Yazik is a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Tech. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I love this. All right. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. GNB Mug Tour 2018 continues in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> okay, who's there? Uh, Jimmy Wright, uh, and uh, looks like a few of his friends as well. Uh, he's uh, got uh, four photos that he's tweeted on the Twitter with the hashtag GN as in Norman B Mug Tour 2018. Because you go to the Geeks and Beats website and you buy one of these fabulous miracle travel mugs of traveling, and then you show us where you are in the world with it. Uh, he is poolside with some hashtag great friends. Now, he has also tagged Leslie Zvonkin, uh, who I think is his wife. At least I hope that's his <laughs> wife, because her profile says married, comma, mama of two. Okay. Uh, and there's a photo of uh, what is probably one of those all-inclusive resorts, uh, the hotel bartender showing off the mug. Oh, nice job. Yeah. It reminds me of the time uh, we, the whole fam family went down to Mexico for a family Christmas vacation. And my, my jackass stepfather kept uh, saying, well, we were in Mexico, because of course now we're talking Spanish. Uh, instead of cerveza, por favor, he was saying, cerveza, pour some more. And he thought that was hilarious. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my, that sounds like something my dad would do. We, we went to an all-inclusive, and um, so we this particular one, you got the same uh, server at your table every time. I guess the idea was that you get to know them, they get to know you kind of thing. And then you tip them? Right, exactly. And, and the guy's name was Cecilio. 
So, of course, my jackass stepfather changed Cecilio to... Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. And so the whole time he called him Susudio and he thought he was hilarious. Yeah, we've decided that Mexico and Dominican Republic are off our list. Mexico, because it's just too violent and weird, and Dominican Republic, because we went there once and we found it just way too antiseptic. So, um, because you don't leave the resort, you just stay there. There's really not much to do and if you're in Punta Cana or, or some of these other places. So, uh, that's, yeah, off the list. Well, it looks like Jimmy's having a fantastic time. We want to say... Well, good for him. I'm glad. That's all that counts. We want to say thank you as well to Victor Biggio, who's showing off another miracle travel mug of traveling in Las Vegas, baby Vegas. Jesus, he gets around. He does. He was the guy who created the initial hashtag back in 2015. We've been doing it that long. We have a new head carpenter working on the show. A head carpenter? Yes. It's not like we need sets or or anything. Why do we have a head carpenter? Dan Lynch emailed me to say, I need to hold your feet to the fire the next time you go off on a dark side rant about how Ticketmaster is simply misunderstood. Okay, we can talk about it as long as he puts down the hammer. He added, P.S., let me know if the big show ever needs a head carpenter. So, of course, we hired him. (laughs) To do what? I have no idea yet. He says he's been a fan since day one, and he also joined the world's worst intern program. So thank you for doing that. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. I may need a carpenter. Really? And I'll tell you why. We have a couple of... Is, is it a kitchen? Well, no. I have a couple of uh, pieces of cabinetry that need some latches fixed. I, dude. I know. You can't fix your own damn latches? <sighs> remind me of that buddy of mine. I showed up at his, his house one day and he had this big uh, ceiling fan sitting in a box. I said, oh, you're putting up a ceiling fan. He says, no, my uncle's on his way over. He's going to do it. We have that problem right now. We have what's called a big ass fan. I swear to God, that's what it's called, a big ass fan. And uh, we're going to uh, hang it in the uh, in the great room. The problem is that we need to change uh, the location of the of the power box. That's a little bit different. Yeah, it's a 20 foot ceiling. So somebody's going to actually have to crawl through the uh, the attic, find the spot and then uh, and drop the um, the the fan from there. (laughs) First world problems. I've yeah, I understand. Yes. Heather Wood, meantime, is this week's super producer. Which means she donated 50 bucks, not 25. Okay. Heather writes that she's been a fan of yours for years, and that's what brought her to the podcast. Really? She says she was off on maternity leave with her twin boys and getting desperate for some outside stimulation. Uh, Wifey talked a lot about that when we had our, our little one and how important it was to actually get some grown-up conversation in uh, during that maternity leave. Yeah, that's true. She says that uh, when she listened, she listened to the podcast with William Shatner as her first one, and then after that, she was hooked. Thank you. Meantime, uh, Steve realized his payment system got disconnected from his account on Patreon a year ago, so he made up for it with a $25 donation. So thank you as well, Steve. Very good. We don't run ads on this program. We... Uh... Simply hope that you will uh, donate based on how much value you get out of the program. And apparently the show's worth 185 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Based on the number of people that download this, that's not very good. But that's okay. We're not going to pander. No, 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 not at all. As a matter of fact, I think the pandering is why Heather Wood um, gave us 50 bucks and why Steve said, you know what, I'll only throw you 25. 
But after we lost ground in February on Patreon.com, for the month of March, between February and March, we are now up two bucks a show. Excellent. And two additional patrons. So thank you so much for that. We also want to say thank you specifically to our latest, uh, Lisa Malia. Uh, She joined the World's Worst Intern Program, pledging a buck an episode with no lifetime limit, which means we will suck her credit card dry. One dollar at a time for the rest of her life. Exactly. (laughs) For the rest of the show's life. (laughs) Okay. Well, it helps. It it does help. Hey, listen, I'm going to uh, the Juno Awards in uh, a a couple of weeks. Sorry to hear that. Well, I have to do the red carpet, you understand. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Tell me all about it. What are you wearing and all that nonsense? Yes, all that sort of crapola. And I I hate how women and men are turned into mannequins. And it's all, oh, who are you wearing? Oh, where's those jewels? from. Uh, if anybody has any suggestions for what I should ask musicians, I got a suggestion. What? Throw them a total curveball. What's your favorite pizza topping? Okay, that's good. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about. If anybody has any suggestions about what I should ask Canadian music stars and music industry luminaries on the red carpet at the 2018 Junos, send it into Geeks and Beats, and I will see if I can slip it in someplace. <laughs> That's a variation of what I do on BNN. Is it? We, we, we play the word of the day where uh, I just I get random guests and um, people in the green room to throw me out a word, and I have to incorporate it into my hello, welcome to the big show introduction. Oh, so it, it's like... Um, have you never done the word of the day on the radio? No, I've never done it. I, but I, you know, what I have noticed is when I interview artists, uh, they will, be, out of sheer boredom, try to manipulate the interview with some word or some concept or something simply because they've done these sorts of interviews so many times and answered the same question so many times that they're just looking to, you know, alleviate the boredom. Is it ready to go, Meow? What? You want to do the headlines, Meow? Oh, yeah. Meow? (laughs) Oh, God. Is that how you do it? Have you not seen Super Troopers? No. Why would I watch Super Trooper? No. I could have sworn you said Meow. Don't look like a cat to you, boy. (laughs) Am I jumping around all nimbly bimbly from tree to tree? No. I'm going to have to give you a ticket on this. But no buts, Meow. That's the law. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.